0: You're listening to Vocal Minority on 3RRR with me, Bez Zolder, and Jim Malo. G'day. Our guest today is Nathan Muji sentence a.k.a. the Archival Decolonist, which is the name of his website. He's a Wiradjuri man from Darkinjun country in New South Wales and a proud descendant of the Diana Mudgee. He works as a project officer in First Nations programming at the Australian Museum in Sydney and is a member of the Indigenous Archive Collective. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nathan.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, so we wanted to start off by talking about what you call cultural and memory institutions, such as uh, mm-hmm. you know galleries, libraries, archives, museums, that sort of thing. Um, some would argue they're inherently, you know, colonialist, racist kind of inventions and mm. obviously quite contentious spaces for black and indigenous uh, folks all over the world. Um, why is it important for you as an indigenous man to to enter these spaces? Like what role do you see black people like yourself playing within these institutions?
1: I think, yeah, these institutions are important. And as you said, they are inherently racist in many ways and they have been used previously as tools of colonialism i think the reason why there needs to be sort of indigenous representation within them is because they are one of the ways that sets the national narrative and that's one of their that's one of their powers and that's one of the reasons why they have previously and in many cases contemporary complicit in sort of like you know a one-sided view of history that sort of um glorifies in some ways colonization so i think without first nations people to sort of be in these spaces to sort of facilitate a write a reply to that to ensure that um that um you know more people who engage if this is the way they engage in history um they need to hear from first nations voices so that's one of the things i try to do and one of the things i aim to do is sort of to not just um, facilitate ways for mob to come into these spaces and tell their own stories and represent themselves, which I think is really important. But I also try and get museum visitors to be critical of cultural institutions. And I hope that um, they take that critical mindset and uh, apply it to other aspects of life, such as um, media and consider, like, whose voice is um, missing from these discussions, whose perspective is missing on these discussions particularly when it does involve um you know people from marginalized groups who's re- who's um talking about them and why
0: mm, yeah that's a good point and how do you find it on a personal level as well just being confronted with such um you know traumatic and heavy parts of our our, of our history and present
1: yeah it's it's tough like uh, museums like you know there's many museums around the world and in australia that have things like human remains. There's uh, museums that have for a very long time, you know, um, some have engaged in scientific racism, um, you know, from having long histories of anthropology. So, you know, they'll have the research of, you know, Aboriginal skull sizes. They have old documentation in the archives that, you know, describe Aboriginal people in horrible ways. Uh, in dehumanizing ways, which it could be either the, you know, creator's intention or just, you know, a reflection of the times that were created in. Um, it can be heavy. I think that's one of the things that, um one of the reasons why I think it's good to have mob in these spaces is because un- like, unfortunately, some of these spaces, especially say like libraries, archives, and, and museums as well, have, um, you know, fragments of our culture that, um we need to reconnect to sometimes to you know maybe revitalize language so it's good to have mob in these spaces to help facilitate make that happen but also at the same time to um prepare mob for what they're about to um engage with because you know you can come into these spaces they're highly colonial and then you read some of the the brutality that you know but it's still always shocking so i i think that um you know, there's only so much you can do um, on a personal level. Um, but, you know, you, you're just trying to do really good work. And I think that can sometimes push you through that sort of that sort of brutality that you mentioned.
2: Now, you sort of touched on this a little bit um, with your previous answers. Um, and I've seen that you've written about this uh, in the past as well. But um, you've said that Indigenous people here were subjected to a genocide. Um, now mm. that's not a contentious issue in this studio, not for Bez or I, but, um, and mm. probably not for our listeners either. Um, but you know, I just feel like it's um, important to sort of, um, just set out how, how that actually is the case. So would you mind sort of explaining some of the different ways in which, um, you know, indigenous people and culture have been, um, effectively erased?
1: Yeah. So, um, using sort of the UN's, uh, historical definition of genocide, um, which is I think is still the main definition of genocide. You can see that it, 100% applies to Australia. So like um, the killing of members of another group. So that happened definitely here in the massacres, you know, there's there's in, and this is even based on, you know, historical research done by, you know, University of Newcastle, which is only scratching at the surface. This is only scratching at massacres that are easily identified easily um, and heavily documented, which, not all massacres are. Um, so based on that, and massacres are, I think, the killing of um, six or more people. So there's been at least, I think, 140 documented massacres, and that's only between the 1788 and I think the early 1900s. I think the last stank- state-sanctioned um, killing of Indigenous, like uh, like a massacre, was like 1928. Um, and so there's massacres and the killing which um, obviously occurred and occurred in abundance Um, and then there's the transferring of um, uh, children off a particular group to another group with the intention of um, eliminating the group So, and that's one of the main, um, um, you know, acts of sort of genocide. And that, of course, happened in Australia with the Stolen Generation and could arguably still be happening with the continued removal of um, First Nations children to non-First Nation um, families. Um, But it was, you could easily make that case more with sort of the different Aboriginal Protection Acts that came out in the different states because, of especially things like the work of a.o neville who basically said that his intention was to um quote-unquote breed the blackout and there's always that famous image that um gets shared around of the three generations of indigenous families where you show um which a.o neville you know uses in his book so if and and even if you don't look at a a like sort of a a quote-unquote race level there was uh you know um the you know um the enforcing of sort of like uh western religion onto first nations people that entered the missionaries the um not allowed to be uh, the use of language and the not um the prohibiting of culture is all part of that sort of transferring um children from one group to another with the sole intention of you know destroying a racial identity so um both those um things i mentioned really do put a case that genocide happened in Australia.
2: And did you, would you say it's still ongoing today as well? I mean, we, we, we see lots of police brutality. Uh, you know, Indigenous people uh, die in police custody in, in prisons all the time. Uh, you know, cultural artifacts like the Jabrung trees are being destroyed. Like, would you say these things are examples of the ongoing genocide?
1: Definitely. So I think someone um i remember it was written in a gsx article by um activist um um, gavin walker um he wrote that um using you know the data that's been coming since 1991 that a first nations person on average dies every 28 days in um some sort of interaction with the police or um the criminal justice system so you could um definitely make that argument and then also to yeah uh the continual removal of um First Nations children, which is uh, is larger now than it was during the Stolen Generations, and even in uh, I'm not sure about other states, but in New South Wales, just in 2018, the Forced uh, um, Adoption Act changed, which um, meant that uh, parents of uh, parents of children didn't have to be notified um, after two years that their children have been adopted out and they have no contact, which is and very similar sort of precaution things that could have very similar effects to the stolen generation. So you could argue that's still going on. And then talking about um, the drop wrong trees and a lot of other cultural sites that have been um, destroyed through uh, different colonial acts. That's part of something. Um, well, not part of the official UN like the UN's definition of genocide. Um, is something that um, people call slow genocide or some people call it cultural genocide, but it is really part of a destruction of a cultural identity. So you could argue definitely that that's still going on in different sects. And even, um, even in small ways with the continue, um, you know, a lot of our cultural sites get renamed or um, not just get destroyed, get renamed. And that sort of is again erasing um, the cultural ident- identity of the landscape, which is, can in some ways um, damage um, cultural identity.
0: Mm, And what role did the missions play in the genocide and and the stolen generation?
1: Well, yeah, as I mentioned just before, I think really the the destruction of identity was a part of it and also trauma. Like uh, that's another uh, definition I think of genocide is um, the... the infliction of uh, psychological damage. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that's one of the um, acts yeah, of saw, genocide. Yeah, I saw that
2: in your, um, on your blog post about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm. So that's, and that's one of the things that could uh, is definitely argued with the um, Stolen Generations, the the trauma that comes from that place with a lot of the people, you know, I previously worked, um, you know, trying to tell the stories of some of the survivors from different, especially, particularly... Um, very hard missions that missions that had, you know, histories of sexual and violent, um, sexual abuse and, um, violence against children. Those, um, you know, have scars that, um, have existed, you know, a generation on from the, from those survivors and still cause damage in communities. So that's one of the issues. And then again, what I, uh, what I said previously, the, um, the damage it does on cultural identity, you know, uh, trying to um, basically through uh, identity to try, um, basically destroying identity by prohibiting, um, you know, to partake in your culture or by, um, you know, severing your ties with your community or forbidding you to use your language. So, yeah, that have has that sort of effect on your um that's a way of sort of destroying a racial or cultural group by sort of basically, um, like, this is even seen with, say, like, the ticket uh, in some states had the certificate of exemptions where you were allowed, um, you were no longer subjected to the curfews that um, Aboriginal people were subjected to, or you no longer had to um, be on the mission. Um, and those certificates basically said you were no longer Aboriginal. Whoa. So they, uh, they Yes, yeah, to certificate, of, and some, some mob call them dog tags, um, but they were given to people. And was they, this um, they,
2: before Indigenous people were recognized and like as, as people as well?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that
2: is so sinister. Uh,
1: so they, they give you a certificate and say, like, um, you, and for some people, it was like a, it was, um, a really horrible thing because what would mean is because there was a lot of laws in some of the States where you were not, you weren't allowed to fraternize with Aboriginal people. So if you were given the certificate of that, of exemption, so you were exempt from um, the laws that um, governed Aboriginal people, one of those things meant you weren't allowed to fraternize with Aboriginal people. So some people weren't allowed to fraternize with their family anymore, um, because they were considered non-Aboriginal and their family was considered Aboriginal. and it still was even even um, it didn't stop some of those people from getting like uh, you know feeling the brunt of racism even though they had a they might have had a piece of paper that said they're not Aboriginal but their their skin tone might say otherwise yeah. so they were still copying it from um, you know they were still copying it from you know the the non official racial segregation
0: mm. and in a lot of your writing you've talked about how you used to discuss um, missions and missionary papers and their usefulness in regards to First Nations family history, but also the frustration you'd feel because you just end up discussing and centering the missionaries themselves in your work. So, which is understandable considering most of this country's history, at least the history we um, prioritise, is written from a non-Indigenous perspective. So, you know, What do you think we can do about this sort of framing of history and culture, both within memory institutions um, but also outside of them?
1: I think uh, definitely inside memory institutions, one of the things that workers like me sh- should be focusing on is like questioning who's being centred and also questioning, um, I guess, like whiteness as a structure. I think it's one thing that um, uh, cultural institutions libraries, archives, museums do very poorly is, um, and it's one thing I always talk about is the fact that um, to a lot of uh, staff within these institutions, uh, white people are considered uh, the, are being centred, but they're being centred almost by default because they, they themselves don't see that as a bias. They don't see that the centering of white people is a bias. They just see it as the norm, which it is sort of the norm, but, but because that bias is so prevalent. And I think even with um, how exhibitions are run and sometimes in museums, they center or consider the first and foremost consideration is sort of white audiences. So it sort of caters that white gaze. So I think that's one of the things to always think about is like, who's being centered? And then um, again, just considering whose perspective you're hearing and why and especially if it's on someone else's experiences or someone else's culture or someone else's history, consider who is saying this and why they're saying this, um, and whose perspective is missing, which is a hard one to think about if you if you're not really looking out for it. But it's one thing that you know mob will see when they see exhibitions is just considering, and I think it again that applies to things like the media is like, who wrote this, why they wrote this. Um, And whose perspective is missing from this? Uh, So I think that's one of the things, yeah, workers in um, memory institutions, we should be trying to get our visitors to think about, but we should also be asking ourselves.
2: So we also mentioned that you're a descendant of um, Diana Mudgee in our introduction, Mm -hmm. and um, she was fostered by a white family too, which is um, uh, a sort of like a little bit of a tie-in from that last question. I mean, could you just tell us a little bit more about her and why she's so important?
1: Uh, She she's quite famous around the sort of, yeah, the Mudgee region. Um, so she, she lost her family in a massacre, um, when she was quite young, um, like between 10 or, um, eight or 10. And then she worked as a domestic servant, r- um, right after that. Um, and then she sort of was given the name Diana Mudgee, um, which I always thought were, that's why I got call myself Nathan Mudgee sentence as well, because, mm. um, I, you know, Diana's name, uh, she was given a name and I think she was given the name Diana, I think just because it's a good Christian name and muji just because that's where she was working, which I think, um, which I've now confirmed talking to some elders that muji does come from the word muji which just means friend or mate. Um, so I, I use that name to sort of repurpose and reclaim that name that was sort of imposed on my great grandmother. And, um, but yeah, she was real famous cause she sort of, she m- ended up marrying about, uh, she married and got widowed a few uh, about three times, and she had about twelve children. But she was actually um, a landowner, which is um, because of being widowed, she was a sole landowner in some cases, uh, which uh, was which was uncommon for women at the time, but super uncommon for an Aboriginal woman at that time. Um, and eventually, uh, I think what I've been told is that she basically lost all her land because you know the town didn't really like it and the bank and um fellow sort of uh you know businessmen sort of used predatory sort of like you know systems to sort of um eventually sort of debt her out of her land
0: Hmm. um also we wanted to touch on uh something scott morrison said earlier this year he said that slavery is just not part of australia's history what's your take on that
1: well, yeah, I I think this is always a thing where um people try to um I think someone called it like the three free Tibet syndrome where people try to say other places are worse than here mm-hmm. to try to avoid to talk about the history here. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's happening here. But of course there was. Um there has been a lot of people made rebuttals at that time, very, you know, great rebuttals, but there has been slavery here in different forms. Like wage, slavery, Um, I know of stories of um, mob, especially mob who worked on, uh, who lived on missions, being sort of um, kind of rented out to uh, work um, places and then they were getting, technically they were getting quote unquote paid, but their money was going to the missions. Mm. So they were um, basically working for free. Um, As I said, like uh, Diana Mudgee, she was an indented servant. She was um, definitely probably working for, little to no pay so there has been slavery and there's also of course the famous of blackbirding up in um up in sort of the queensland region on the sugar canes they were um stealing pacific islanders to uh work those fields and a lot of those pacific islanders uh a lot of those descendants still live in australia a lot of there's a lot of um you know people with sort of aboriginal and pacific islander heritage based from that history and The horrible thing was um in 1901 because of basically because of racism this was i think either the the first or second law that australia did when it was federated so the first two laws when australia was federated was one was the white what became known as the white australian policy and the other one was the pacific islanders workers act which basically banned pacific islanders from working in australia Uh, which sounds like a progressive thing, but it was mostly out of racism. Like white workers didn't like that um, Pacific Islands were being not altruistically because of the um, unethical nature of using slave labor, but more because they're taking jobs from white workers. So a lot of Pacific Islanders, of course, got basically shipped off out of Australia and um, taken to islands that weren't even their islands. Some of the Pacific Islanders um, lived in Australia most of their lives while um, unfortunately working, you know, slave labor, but, you know, started families in Australia and then got um, taken away from their families. So Australia definitely had um, a history of slavery.
2: Now, you also touched on this before, but was there an apartheid here? Was there a sort of a a structured um, legal framework for keeping uh, races separate?
1: yeah definitely like the missions and reserves were the aboriginal protection acts stopped um you know basically had rules in many states where you couldn't fraternize with um aboriginal people um particular hours and there was you know and the caste system of aboriginal aboriginality was a sort of um legalized um segregation in some way so there definitely was apartheid and i even even if um and segregation this is one thing that um I always think about is how segregation still exists in sects of Australia and maybe it's not like um, legalized, but you can sort of see it still in sort of particularly like regional towns, even um, even in sort of uh, metropolitan areas that there's still a sort of, a, even though it's not legally uphold a segregation that happens of sort, um, you know, in um, the mid 2010s, I was working at the State Library in New South Wales and we were gearing up to do an exhibition on the Freedom Rides, um, uh, because it was the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Rides of um, Charles Perkins and many other students from uh, University of Sydney going around two towns of New South Wales that had segregation. And so, you know, they and like one of the famous places they went to were the Maury Swimming Pools that, that did have separate days for, Aboriginal and white people being able to use the facilities. And Charles Perkins and the other students of um University of Sydney sort of busting it open and um sort of uh desegregating or integrating um the pool that day. And but one of the interesting things was I was going around to some of the towns that the Freedom Riders went to, um Moree, walgett Bree Brewarriner, and those towns. Even though it's been 50 years since those segregation, there still is sort of like the black end of town, the white end of town and the white end of town is much better sort of resourced and better, um, you know, uh, and the white end of town, you know, might have barred windows or, you know, all this sort of things to sort of still separate the town. So, yeah.
2: And um, this country was, you know, it was not only stolen from black people, but then it was like built on the backs of black people and they were um, and they're stolen labor. And then on top of that as well, you know, we just discussed how they're they're kept separate and then, you know, kept in poverty. I mean, do you think it's important for this um, so-called country to face
1: that? Yeah, 100 percent. I think that's one of the reasons why we avoid tough discussions on history is because we live in the legacy of history. Like history is not just the past. It's what is created the present. And I think that's why we need to understand it basic also too. Cause like, like an example would be like recently uh, we did a tour of um, our galleries. with some students from a school and we were talking about the New South Wales uh, adoption act and how it, you know, affects aboriginal families and how it's um it has the danger of becoming you know facilitating something that's quite similar to the stolen generations and uh, we overheard one of the students say well isn't that a good thing like and we um because you know the adoption act and the people i'm pro- um, talking about it say you know say terms like protection or like you know um help but you know all these sort of things and we stopped the um we stopped the um the um, teenager who said this comment and sort of just explained again, like when the stolen generation's happening, it wasn't like people were saying they were like, there was lots of people that of course were saying them bad at the time, but you know, mainstream Australia was being told things like it was called Like a lot of the policies were called protection acts. And a lot of the people would always say that they're um, doing it for the betterment of Aboriginal people. So the the reason why we need to learn about history is so we can um because a lot of those stuff, like as we've been saying throughout this conversation, is ongoing and is feeding into what is today. And so we need to like learn the history so it can um, stop repeating. And I think um, I think you know a lot of people do get this sort of, um, especially non-Indigenous people get this feeling of guilt. But they they should find, um, question why they feel that guilt. And then also, if they do feel these negative emotions, should channel it into something positive you know, um, to sort of um, create change. Like that's, that's, that's what like history and memory work should be about is um, creating change. And I think um, that, that's something that I hope uh, we, um, the people who work at the Australian Museum, we can do.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nathan. You just heard Nathan Mudge Sentence, Project Officer in First Nations programming at the Australian Museum. You can find him at archivaldecolonist.com or on Twitter at Say What Nathan. Keep it on triple R.